Okay. There we go. All right, should be recording. So thank you for being here. If you, uh, hopefully you have one of these when you came in. If not, it's because we ran out. And so I'll throw it up here on the screen in just a little bit, but uh, no worries about that. Um, but my name is uh, Tyler Wilson. You guys can sit over here. Oh, you got saved seats. Saved seats, saved seats, all right. My name is Tyler and I'm the home groups pastor here. Um, and so really, uh, it's just a joy to be able to teach this. My heartbeat is for the mission of this church is that we really come in so many angles at fulfilling our mission, which is to make disciples for the glory of God. And so while we preach and respond in there and while we're in a home group, this is just another peripheral, secondary way that we can come around you as a church and equip you, like last week's sermon, for the work of ministry. And so the whole point of this class is to equip you, to give you the tools, the knowledge of the scriptures, so that you can fulfill the gifts and you can walk in uh, the work of ministry that God has set for you. So, um, kind of how this originated and kind of the birthplace of this class in my heart was, uh, was really out of college. I went to seminary, and, and a lot of the things that I began learning in seminary, and really not just in seminary, but in my own personal walk with the Lord, and just my own time with the Lord, I began um, just seeing that, yes, I was a believer, but there were so many essential truths that I just didn't know and understand. It's like no one took the time to teach me these things and share these things with me. And I began to just, like, why is no one teaching this? Why is no one sharing these things? Why am I a third-year student in seminary and finally hearing about this? This seems so basic. Um, and so these things just began to birth in my heart. Um, and then a year ago, I, I, I put kind of all this content together and created this class at the village where I was at. And, and so we taught this four-week class. It was four weeks um, called Foundations. And so this is really where this birthed in my heart. And so my heartbeat is to really go, and these are all the things I wish someone would have taught me and told me and helped share with me as a, as a believer who had been a believer for 15 years, and yet still I didn't know these things. And so that's how I've laid this out. So my hope is to do that for you um, wherever you're at. So if you're in here and you're like me, man, you've been a believer maybe 20 years, um, but this is just going to reinforce some things, or maybe it's the first time you got to hear some of these things, and so I hope that's the case too. Um, maybe it's just you know these things, but you've never been able to put it all together. Right? Like, you, you know what the gospel is. You know a little bit about who Jesus is. But, like, how does it all thread together in the scripture? Um, and that's really what I want to be able to do for you. Or maybe you're, maybe you're a newer believer, and so this is going to be literally the first time you hear some of these things, which is great. Um, and then maybe there's some of you who, honestly, uh, maybe, maybe you're still kind of investigating a little bit about things. What is the Bible? Who is Jesus? And so for those of you here, man, this is a place of freedom. This is a great place to to doubt, to be skeptical, to have questions, and so let's just set that up um, from the get-go, and, and kind of the, how this is going to work is, um, as we go through this for six weeks, and, and honestly, I haven't taught it in six weeks before, so we may end up week six going, hey, we're going to have a week seven, because we didn't, we weren't able to pack this in, but hopefully six weeks, um, a couple things for you just to kind of set the layout, so you can see the schedule behind me, that's kind of the main subjects we're going to hit, um, First week, just being setting things up today with what is the Bible and who is God. Then in the next week, we'll get into really zoom in a lot on Genesis 1 through 3, uh, creation and fall. We're going to spend a lot of time on that. Then we zoom back out and really hit the whole rest of the Old Testament. I know that sounds crazy. Genesis 4 through Malachi in one week. Um, but that's kind of the whole point, is to give you a, a really bird's eye view of this at the 30,000 foot level so that you can really understand how everything is fitting together. Uh, week four, we'll hit who is Jesus, that the promise is now manifest, um, 
the personal work of Jesus. We're going to zoom in on Matthew a lot, which is one of my favorite books. And, um, and then week five, kind of what is a response to that? What really is repentance look like? What really is faith? What does it mean when, it cre- when we create disciples? What does that look like? And then the church, we'll talk a lot about how the church was birthed in the book of Acts. We'll go through some church history even briefly. Um, and then go into what is a disciple? What does that look like now that we are the church? Um, so that's the layout. My hope is that you will um, feel the freedom to ask questions along the way. Um, and so I'm going to teach this kind of like a college course in the sense that a lot of it is going to be mostly me talking. But you are welcome, encouraged to stop me at any point, raise your hand, ask a question. Chances are someone else is wondering it too. So just ask it. Um, and then I'll probably pause at certain points instances just to to encourage hey does anyone have a question about this so that's kind of how we'll go questions throughout and then also kind of maybe some sections for questions as well uh, but feel the freedom just to stop me at any point okay so that's kind of how we'll we'll roll I'll try my best to get us out by noon we start a little late today so we'll just kind of see if we get to noon I may stop for a minute and say anyone who has to leave go ahead and leave just if you got kids or you got to get and then I may say but we got five more minutes so if you want to stay we'll just go ahead and go five more minutes so um, sound good? Cool. All right. So, brief overview, unpacking this. Why does this matter? Why are we even doing this? Um, C.S. Lewis said once, he said, if Christianity is true, it is of utmost importance. If it is false, it's of no importance. But what it cannot be is of some importance. And of course, I believe that it is true. And so for me, it is of utmost importance. And so, as we think about theology, big word, theology just means the study of God, Um, a lot of us like to think of ourselves, oh, I'm not a theologian, I don't really know what that looks like. But the truth is that everyone in this room is a theologian. You are a theologian. You have thoughts about God. You have beliefs about God. Even an atheist is a theologian. He has certain beliefs about God. Um, He doesn't believe that he exists. That is theology. The question is not whether you're a theologian or not, it's whether you're a good one or not right? Um, And so the whole point of this class is, man, I want to help you be a good theologian. I want to help you think rightly about God. But it is, uh, A.W. Tozer, I love this, he said, what you think about God, so theology, what you think about God is the most important thing about you. And that's exactly right. And so this couldn't be of more greater significance than what we're going to talk through the next six weeks. There's nothing more important. What we think about God is the most important thing about us. And it's also important because of what I said a few weeks ago in my sermon. That is false doctrine and slaves, but the truth sets free. So that's why these things matter as we maybe get into some details. It matters because it affects life. What you believe affects how you live, inevitably. And so we better be believing true and believing right so that we begin to live right. Um, and I don't want you to be enslaved. I've been enslaved in false doctrine. I've bought into a lot of legalistic self-righteousness uh, for much of my life. And, uh, and it's, it's frustrating It's not freeing, it's empty, and I I want you guys to be able to walk in the freedom that the truth brings. So, there you go. Um, Really, the first topic is is the Bible, and so I'm going to pull up that page that I said uh, some of you guys may not have got. And really, the reason that's the first topic is we look about the next six weeks. Really, the Bible, it, it paints a story. This is 66 books all telling one story. And so if we're going to start diving into the story, we need to talk about the book first that's telling the story, right? And so let's just back up to that. 
Um, to define the Bible, it comes from the Greek word biblion, which just means scroll or like a roll. Um, it's a conglomerate of, of books assembled. So we believe there's 39 Old Testament books, 27 New Testament books. Together they form the 66 books of the Bible uh, that we believe. Um, and so just from this, what is the, what is the Bible? overarching way you could describe the Bible to someone is say it's God's self-disclosure to mankind or it's self-revelation. It's God saying, Here, here's who I am. Him revealing himself to man. Um, and of course, as he reveals himself, it has profound implications on us because he's also revealing a lot about us. So we learn not only about who he is, but we learn about us. Well, the, the question is, is why is that necessary? Why, why is this book right here, why, was it, why did it need to be written? And the answer comes from, well, God had to reveal himself. Well, you may say, well, didn't he reveal himself when he created the stars and the, the mountains? And can't we see all those things? Romans 1, right? Uh, which talks about everything that's been made, is, is declaring certain things about God, his eternal attributes. Absolutely, those things are true. We distinguish between two types of revelation. There's general revelation and there's specific revelation. We would call general revelation those things that God has created that are just like creation or history. That God has revealed himself um, through the formation of a mountain. And that is speaking about his majesty and beauty. Psalm 19 is a great um, illustration of these two different types of revelation. The first half of the psalm talks about general revelation. And it says, the creation, the heavens are declaring the glory of God. The skies are proclaiming the work of his hands. Day after day, they're pouring forth speech. And night after night, they're, they're displaying knowledge. So everything, the stars, the, the, the way that the earth is aligned, the perfect distance from the sun to the, the amazing, just meticulous nature of a cell or the seasons, all these things are pointing about the glory of God. They're all speaking. It's like a shadow of who God is. It's reflecting things about his character and his nature. And so this is what we might call general revelation. Uh, another way to think about it, it's also the things that he's given us that are his grace. And so the fact that you can taste good food, eat a steak, or enjoy pleasure, or art, or all these things are just speaking about God. Uh, and then also an aspect of his general revelation is just our conscience. The fact that we know in, inherent in us, we understand there's this thing that says this is right, this is wrong, this is good, this is not good. Now we, we mute that sometimes, we, we dumb that down, it becomes a bit um, dull, but it's in us. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, eternity has been set in our hearts. God has set eternity in the hearts of men. And so it's, it's in us, it's just innate. That all those things are telling us there is a God. He's here. God exists. God is real. This is a little bit about what he's like. And so that's exactly why Romans 1 says, men are without excuse. Because it's plain. It's everywhere. Look around you. And there's things testifying to this creator. The thing about Romans 1, though, it, it says that men are without excuse, but it doesn't say that general revelation provides the ability to save. So basically what it's saying is general revelation is sufficient for condemnation. It's not sufficient for salvation. It's sufficient for condemnation. In other words, it brings enough knowledge that we are responsible now. Like we're in judgment now. However, it doesn't tell us how to be saved. It doesn't tell us how to know this creator. Um, and that's why we need special revelation, which is the scriptures, which is this book we call the Bible. This is God revealing himself 
in a very clear way and specifically kind of has as it, at its climax the paramount revelation is in the person of Jesus Christ, which Hebrews 1 talks about. It's so sweet uh, where it says, God has spoken in these former days through prophets, but now he has revealed himself through his son. But we also see in 2 Corinthians, it says, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So we want to know God. How do we know God? We look at Jesus. Uh, even Jesus says that, right? If you want to know the Father, look at me. He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Okay. So that's the difference between general revelation and special revelation and why we needed God to make it clear beyond just creation. Very good. Okay. Well, let's talk about some characteristics of the Bible. Um, some of these words maybe that are, are thrown at the bottom of this sheet, that's pretty important words. So we, we hear these words a lot. If you've been around a church setting or growing up at any kind of background in the church, you've heard inspiration. It's Bible's inspired. It's inerrant. What do these things mean? Well, let's talk about that. It's very important. When we say inspiration, the, the Bible um, is inspired. What we mean, and this is coming from 2 Timothy 3.16, which is at the top of that sheet, that says... Uh, the word of God is, it literally it says, God breathed. Um, the word there in Greek, um, theonuma. Theos, God, pneuma, spirit, or breath. It's the same word, spirit or breath. God breathed, God's spirit. This is where we get the word in spiritation, inspiration. It means it's from the spirit. So God is <coughs> speaking out. It's his breath that's coming out. The Holy Spirit is producing this. This is what we mean by inspiration. Basically, we're saying that these are the words of God. Yes, men wrote these, but these are the literal, very words of God. So that we believe that the Holy Spirit superintended, that's a word that gets thrown out a lot, superintended, came over the process and actually produced, even though these human men are writing these things down, the Holy Spirit oversaw all of it to create his own words on this page. Exactly what he wanted said. Um... So, how does this play out? We see sometimes it's just divine uh, dictation in the scriptures. God said something, and a prophet's just writing, God said. 3,800 times, in fact, the, the Bible says, God said, and the Lord said, and the Lord said. So sometimes they're just writing directly what the Lord has said to them. <coughs> Other times, though, and the vast majority of the Bible is not them just saying, God said. So it's them actually writing, maybe it's a history account, maybe it's a poem, um, maybe it's uh, reasoning about theology and all these things we know that even then there's verses that are saying uh, God said and then they quote maybe a passage from the Old Testament but it wasn't something that God said in the Old Testament it was something that Moses was writing it wasn't a direct thing that the Lord said but it, Moses wrote it but then Paul saying oh hey God said that well that's pretty profound because it's, the Bible was equating these words with the words of God very important. So even within the Bible, there's testament to going, no, 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 these weren't just Moses' words. These are God's words. This is something different. Um, by the way, if you want a lot of the scripture references on these, uh, you can just email me. I'll, I mean, I got kind of parentheses, but I don't want to list out five verses behind everything. So if you want some of those, just, just write it down and email me. Um, sometimes the authors even acknowledge that the things that they were saying were the very words of God. You'll hear Peter say that. Paul say that, um, you know, what I'm saying is directly from the Lord. This is not from me. This is from him. Um, even other authors call what other authors wrote scripture. So Peter will sometimes say about Paul, this is, uh, this is from God. This is God's word. It's very interesting 
for them to say that and acknowledge that literally a few years after it was written, going, this is, this is not simply a mere man writing this. This is God's word. So inspiration is necessary to guarantee accuracy. If it's not inspired, then there can be error, right? Um, and there certainly can be error because there's human element to authorship. So these are actual men writing these things. Um, sometimes it comes through, like, like we already said, the divine dictation, but most of the time it's based on something else. Maybe there was research or investigation done. Luke writes his whole gospel account, says at the beginning, after he researched, he examined, he talked to eyewitnesses of Jesus, he went around, conducted interviews, and then he wrote the gospel of Luke. Very interesting. Okay, well, how is that inspired then? It sounds very um, scientific. Well, even in that, we believe that God superintended all these factors, and that's um, even the backgrounds of the authors, the personalities, the, the style within they write, with which they write, the, um, their intentions, all of those, we believe, were governed by the Holy Spirit so that what they produced literally are the words of God. Now, you may say, that's cool, Tyler, but you can't prove that. You know what? You're right. I can't prove that that's true. I cannot prove that this is the word of God, um, nor can you prove that it's not. Ultimately, inspiration is a conviction that is brought about by the Holy Spirit. We call that faith. You can either have faith to believe that that is true or faith to not believe that is true. Now, there's some good reasons and arguments to back up why I believe that's true, so it's not like I'm just crossing my fingers with blind faith, but ultimately, that is something the Holy Spirit has to produce in you to go, I believe that. As I'm reading this, there's something different about this. This is not the words of men. Here's a few reasons, though, why I believe it is the word of God. So just, you know, evidence to back this up. Okay. One is historical reliability. The dates, the uh, cities, the actual men and women in the Bible, the archaeological evidence is pretty astounding. How accurate, how, uh, how present these cities are when they find ruins. Or there really was a man named Jesus um, that historians have accounted for, and he did live during this time, and he was crucified. I mean, there's, these things aren't simply made up. Even, um, I also love that, that this, because it's different from other religions in the sense that it is historical. This is not an idea or just a mere philosophy. Christianity is not just something um, that's, that's thought up, but rather it actually happened recorded in history. So it's very important for our faith. This is grounded in history. Second reason, internal consistency. You know, it's amazing. 35 authors, uh, over two millennia, and yet uh, 66 books, and yet they, they read as one grand story. And I think hopefully you'll get to see that over the next few weeks, how beautiful that thread is. Um, the, the contradictions that seem to be there are just seeming when you understand... <coughs> how they work and how they relate. Maybe they're two sides of the same coin or, or whatnot. We can understand that. Uh, there's fulfilled prophecies in the scripture. That, that's something that's pretty mind-blowing to me. Um, 2,500 prophecies in the scripture, 2,000 of which have already been fulfilled, 500 of which are still future, awaiting fulfillment. Those 2,000 have been fulfilled to the T, literally. Um, when you look at the probability of, of those things happening, you break down each kind of prophecy, okay, that Jesus was born in a town called Bethlehem, which was prophesied, or how he was going to die, and that no bones in him would be broken, or all these types of things. The probability is, is um, I wrote it down, some crazy number. Oh, yeah, um, 1 in 10 to the 2,000th power. 
um, I think that's I can't, I can't even I don't even know what a pro, I don't even I can't even compare that to anything. I don't that's a lot. That's two thousand zeros. Okay, just figure that one out. Um, one thing that really helps us in this is the Dead Sea Scrolls. How many of you guys have heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? Okay, these are just scraps, basically, of Old Testament writings that were found in the northwest bank of the Dead Sea. Um, they were written down by some Essenes, some men that were kind of uh, like monks, basically, that would inscribe this um, in the area called Qumran. Well, why is this significant? It's significant because before then we had no uh, Old Testament scriptures that predated Jesus. So it, it would look like, or you could argue that, oh, well, they just wrote all these prophecies down after they happened. Dead Sea Scrolls give us most of Isaiah, most of the Pentateuch, and they're all predating Jesus. So they go from the 3rd or 4th century B.C. Well, this is huge, because now we have something written that can absolutely, scientifically, be seen to be before Jesus, about Jesus, and it coming true. I mean, this is huge. So this is another thing that just backs up the reliability of the scriptures. Uh, the last thing I would say is the, just the, the beauty and the wisdom of the content. I mean, really, you know, when you read the scriptures, there's just something going on that you just go, man, this isn't like, this isn't like a textbook. This isn't like a novel that I was reading the other day. There's something inherently different about this. Uh, this, this has power that is unique. And, um, and ultimately, that's what brings about that conviction from the Holy Spirit. This is the Word of God. Um, so we see in the word inspiration, there is a need for faith. The need from inspiration is faith. But there's a couple other words uh, that we just want to break down real quick about Scripture too. One is authority. So underneath inspiration, if it is the Word of God, then we're going to say it's also authoritative, meaning it's the highest power. It's the court of appeals. There's nothing. Uh, it is foundational for truth. So another way to look at it, if you've got a car, your owner's manual is the authority on your car, right? <coughs> there's nothing higher. There's nothing more knowledgeable about that subject. This is true. We believe the scriptures are authoritative. Um, you don't come to the scriptures with a critical, rebellious heart. We come to the scriptures with submission. Because this is, this is God talking. He's the highest authority. Who are you to, get, to come at God and go, no, 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 I don't think so. And so we come with a posture of submission and humility. So that's what it means when we say it's authoritative. Um, from authoritative, though, we also need to make sure we say it's normative. So that's a big word. It just means that it has bearing on every aspect of our life. So the, the car manual, okay, it's authoritative, but who flipping cares, right? It's about your car. The scriptures are authoritative, but they have bearing on every facet of your life. In other words, it matters. It matters. It extends its authority into everything about you. So because of that, it demands a response. Your car manual doesn't demand a response. The scriptures do demand a response. Also under inspiration is inerrancy. Okay, so there's another word we throw out. Really, this word became about because out of the need for clarification. Uh, it used to be just inspiration, and then we... Uh, begin to have a lot of text criticism, a lot of people going back and going, well, this manuscript's off here, and these differ here. And so then this word began to come about inerrancy. What does that mean? It just means that the Bible, in its original manuscripts, is the caveat I'll throw out, is without error. Whoa, Tyler, what about, then do we have the one in original manuscripts? Well, all I mean is that there's some copyist error, sure. In 2,000 years, if someone's copying something for 2,000 years, 
Do you think one little letter might get off? Yeah, I think that's true because we have manuscripts that show different things. Here's the important thing about that. None of those differences or discrepancies about text criticisms affect theology. None of them. They're all very minute. They do not have doctrinal implication or significance. So I think it's just one of the things that, yeah, that's going to happen, but the Lord in his grace has allowed it not to happen in a way that changes anything about what we believe, what it says. Now, with that said, there's still crazy amount of accuracy when we find the Dead Sea Scrolls and then we find a manuscript from the 14th century and they're so similar. Like, and not just so similar, that sounds... Okay, they're 99.9999. So there, there's a lot... I'm just saying, I just need to throw that caveat in there in its original manuscript so you kind of understand that. It is without error. Um, so that's contrary to a lot of things we see in like Da Vinci Code or... Like there is no, there's no changing of things. There's no altering of things. It is without error. And also, what it says, then we can believe is true. And so some people are like, oh, but science contradicts this right now. Maybe. Um, I don't know. Sometimes some of these subjects, I don't know enough about science. But okay, maybe it does. Let's see in another thousand years if science still contradicts it. In other words, this is without error, okay? Anything that it is saying is true. And that... I mean, I, I believe that, and I believe that ultimately that will be shown. So if there is a seeming contradiction, I think my posture is I rest in faith going, hey, we're, we're good. That doesn't mean we're intellectually uh, naive and we just say, you just need to believe it too. Um, no, we, we can research. We can get after the finer details, but ultimately it comes down to, well, do you believe if this is written by God? It is? Then okay, then it, it can't be erroneous. Right? God is infallible. He can't mess up. So that's what we mean by inerrancy. Clarity and sufficiency are the last two. Clarity is all that it means is what Bible, what is in the Bible was intended to be understood. This is not a code. This is not something that you got to unlock or figure out. It was intended, it was meant for you to understand it. Man, that is great news. Because <laughs> sometimes it's, it, I don't understand it, right? Um, and that's where we need the help of the Holy Spirit to reveal those things to us. But this is not a mystery code book, and I think this is very important. Deuteronomy 29, 29 is a great verse about that. Uh, the secret things belong to God, but the things that he has revealed belong to us and our children forever. He's revealed these things. They belong to us so that we might do the words of this law, so that we can obey. He wants us to understand. Why would God reveal himself and then put it in a code so that we can't actually see him and know him? He wants us to know him. That's the whole point of the Bible. That's clarity. Sufficiency, the last thing. All this means is that all we need to know for life and godliness, that's first, or Second Peter 1, is found in the, in the scriptures. Um, you don't need to read the scriptures plus a John Piper book. Is John Piper great? Absolutely. I love him. But the point is, is that at the end of the day, if you're on an island with this, this is sufficient. This is enough. It's enough to lead you to salvation. It's enough to lead you to the knowledge of the Lord. Um, we don't need the Bible plus something. It is sufficient. So, let me break for a second there, because that's a lot. Then we're going to talk about the canonization, or how this Bible came to be. But Questions just over this so far? Who's going to be that first person, man? I know. That's going to be... You've got to throw yourself out there. Okay, I'll just keep going. You can raise your hand. Yay, all right. On the front page here, under the uh, books under the law, 
Oh, yeah, it sure is. So when I was formatting this, um, I tried to move everything up, and it looks like I cut off a book. Thank you. Great job. Yeah, there is a fifth book in there. That's why it's called Pentateuch. Pent means five. Um, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Thank you. Appreciate that. Yes, same time frame, same author. Moses wrote that all as one book. Yes. Yeah. No, great question. So, again, I don't mean to say that commentaries aren't important, aren't helpful, but my, my Bible has tons of notes at the bottom. I'm not saying those things aren't helpful. I'm just saying that at the end of the day, they're not where we turn to first, is what I mean to say. Um, that, so, absolutely. It would be stupid of us to think so much of what the Holy Spirit has written through this, and yet think so little of what the Holy Spirit has said through other men and women before us who believe in him. So, absolutely, we need to bring that around. We just understand that at the end of the day, um, this is of first importance, of most importance. So, yes, no, without a doubt. Yeah, Sean? So, when we talk about, you know, the Bible being the Word of God and the very Word of God, but how do we deal with the moral implications of some of the stories that we read that make us feel uncomfortable about what we come to believe God is like, and we read a story about the Canaanite conquest where every single woman and child is murdered. We read stories about, or we read, you know, verses about slavery in the Bible, or yeah. we read stuff that's in the Bible that doesn't match up with what we believe God is to be and why it's in the Bible in the first place. So how do we deal? Yeah. How do we wrestle with that? Right. Now, a great question. Um, here's how I've done it. So I wrestled a lot with the Canaanite conquest. You know, God's not God is commanding the death of people. How do you how do you reconcile that with what we know about the character and nature of God? Um, in instances like that, I think it's very important to seek out what other men and women have said about the Bible. I think that's really where it's key to look at commentaries. So when I was looking at that, I went. I went to DesiringGod.org. I went to TheResurgence.com. I began to pull in some different articles. I talked to uh, my home group. I talked to other dudes I was walking with. And I wrestled. And I wrestled for a while until one guy, I was talking to a guy named Zach Lee with that particular subject, who really helped me understand, and I don't want to get into this too much for this subject, but uh, he really just helped me understand the framework of what's happening in the Canaanite conquest. Here's how it was a part of God's plan. You've got to understand it in this way. Um, and that, for me, was like, thank you. Like, I finally can reconcile this now. Um, so I think to answer that, I think that it just takes a lot of study, a lot of community, a lot of pulling in, uh, a lot of prayer, a lot of submission to the Lord and go, God, I know that you're loving. I know that you're full of grace and mercy. And I also know that you're a just judge. But how does this all reconcile in this story? Because I'm not seeing I think we need, to, we need to wrestle in prayer over that. I think it's okay to say, God, this doesn't seem right. You're not raising your fist at God. You're coming under him going, hey, show me, because I don't see this lining up. Um, so I can't get into answering all the different 
things like that right now, but maybe we'll hit us some of them as we go through. But I think that's the, the process for it. And that process may be eight years. That may not be a, a one-week deal. You know, That may be an eight-week wrestle. Um, but that's where I would start. Okay, let's talk about how the Bible was formed together. We call this canonization. Canon just means uh, assembly. What does it mean? I wrote this down. Thank you. That's right. I know this. Measuring rod. It means measuring rod. This is the standard, basically. So when you match something up against the canon, does it, is it fit or does it not? Is it, is it, does it meet that standard or not? So when we say uh, the canon of Scripture, we, um, this basically was, is the rod that was determined whether these books are inspired or not. So in the Old Testament, we've got 39 books. Um, in the Hebrew Scriptures, the Law, the Prophets, the Writings. And originally, these were officially canonized in 90 uh, A.D., at, I wrote it down. Council of Jamnia. That's right. 90 AD. However, they were really treated, those 39 books were treated like scripture long before that. So even in the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, there is a lot of, you see, commentary about the scriptures talking about it as the scripture, or even listing out the conglomerate of books. And um, they don't, the Hebrew scriptures group it as 24 instead of 39, because they treat all of the minor prophets as one. They treat it's not first and second kings, it's just kings, stuff like that. But they listed out all those 24 books, which are our 39 books. Um, so you already even saw that before Jesus' time as being recognized as this is a group of books together. Um, we see those, some of those books, the Law and the, the Torah. So those are the first five books, the Pentateuch, Genesis through Deuteronomy. Um, those were, man, pretty much throughout history accepted um, as from God. Uh, really no... no you really don't see it anywhere in Hebrew history that those were questioned. Same almost with the prophets. So um, that's kind of the second grouping. A lot of this is like Isaiah, Jeremiah, um, even like Joshua, Judges. Those were considered prophets. Um, so even those were pretty much always accepted. The only ones that were kind of had some dispute were what they call the writings. There's some, some of the books like Song of Solomon, uh, Ecclesiastes, Lamentations, uh, Ruth, Esther. Um, Esther was one. Uh, for sure, but eventually, like I said, the Dead Sea Scrolls group all of these together, and you see them in multiple places, so there's kind of this coming together long before a council got together and said, these are in, these are out. You already begin to see them played out as these are in, these are not in. Um, okay, well, let's talk about uh, the, oh, and also I think it's important to note that the New Testament endorses these Old Testament books, so like we already talked about. There is 250 quotes in the New Testament of the Old Testament of each of these books. Um, so that's very important. If these authors in the New Testament are using them as scripture, then that authenticates, that help authenticates to us that, yes, these are seen as the word of God. Um, even in, uh, this is an interesting verse in Luke 11:51, where Jesus talks about, he says, the murders from Abel to Zechariah. Well, that's kind of an obscure text. What he's saying is Abel, that's Genesis chapter 4, to Zechariah. That's the last person in the book of Second Chronicles. Well, in the order for the Hebrews, Genesis, Exodus, blah, 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 it doesn't end in Malachi. It ends in Second Chronicles. That's how they've arranged it. So what Jesus is saying is he's given us a, re a really interesting, okay, from here to here. It's like saying from Genesis to Malachi. And so he, he says it right there, which is really helpful for us. Um, one thing to note is that, what, what do we mean when we talk about the Apocrypha? So this is very distinct. So our Roman Catholic cousins have a, uh, other books called the Apocrypha that were added to the Bible 
1545, kind of as a response to the Reformation. Well, we don't believe uh, as Protestants that these books were actually scripture. We believe that they were added later, that they might be helpful, but they're not the words of God. Some of the reasons that we believe this is, number one, there's no New Testament quotes of them. Um, Number two, they contain doctrines that are, um, at the best, contrary. So the doctrine, for instance, of praying for the dead, um, the doctrine of, um, help me out here, I just lost it. Come on, purgatory, thank you, purgatory. Um, these are seen nowhere else in the scriptures, but they're seen in the Apocalypse. They're very, very kind of, um, yeah, I would say very controversial things even. Um, and you could probably list out five or six more reasons why the Apocrypha is not accepted, but that those are a couple starting points for it. Um, they were written in the intertestamental period, so in between the New Testament and Old Testament. Old Testament was finished, written about somewhere around 400, 450 B.C., and then there's this silence period before Jesus comes. And so they were written kind of in that period. New Testament, uh, 27 books. Uh, What I love about the New Testament canonization is really developed over time. And so, like we kind of said already, there's this individual recognition even within the scriptures. Paul's saying this about Peter, um, words about John. Like there's something they recognize inherently, automatically. Well, there's something different about this. Um, The first time it was actually established, it really... Um, wasn't until 397 A.D. That's the first council that actually put their stamp on it and said, yeah, this is, this is the Bible. What I love about it is, though, for 400 years before that, 350 years before that, they're already being treated as Scripture. It's just that it, that was the first time that we actually kind of made it official, so to speak. Um, so you see this happen very organically throughout the, the church. So from Turkey to Rome uh, to North Africa, all these people are beginning, oh, yeah, yeah, these are the Gospels. We, well, let's group these four books up. You know, these are letters from Paul, and let's start to group these books up. And, I mean, what's beautiful is that they're all arriving at the same eventual groupings. And there's a couple that were kind of, you know, Hebrews was a little like, well, who wrote that? And Revelations, you know, that's out there, right? And so those took a little more time, but essentially all of our 27 books were being authenticated here and here, and you go to church here, and it's the same thing. And so that, that's something that's really, I love, that really testifies to me the inherency of these scriptures. Um, and I'll read a quote down in just a minute that I think is really cool, too, about that. But here's some factors that led to the canon. First, um, a lot of these attacks on the genuine writings were happening. So people were saying, oh, this isn't true. And so this kind of debate began to spawn, okay, we got to figure out what is in and what's not. Um, also the same thing with heresy so a lot of these false doctrines started coming out in the early church and the church got together man we've got to make sure like is this in or is this out because people are throwing this in there and I don't know if this is correct or not and so these are some of the factors that led to the church going we've got to make it clear we've got to make it clear and that became the council Athanasius council 397 Um, but Here's some factors. So every book you see in the New Testament is an apostolic writing. So it was written by an apostle, someone who had been with Jesus. Um, So that was kind of the first quality or test. Um, They had to see Jesus in his resurrection. We talked about that last week. Um, Second, we see that acceptance was kind of the second quality or test. Was the book accepted by the church at large? Were there any churches or areas or regions that were disputing this? If it was disputed, then we need to talk some more. Third 
quality or test was the content. Did the book reflect consistency of doctrine with what had been accepted as orthodox across um, the Old Testament and then in the early church? So, you know, kind of like the Apocrypha. Is it saying things that don't gel with everything else? And the fourth is inspiration. Is there something in this book that inherently lends itself to the reader as this comes from the Lord? Here's a quote that I really want to read. Two quotes, one from J.I. Packer, one from Charles Ryrie about this that I think helps say it better than I can say it. They say, It's essential to remember that the Bible is self-authenticating since its books were breathed out by God. In other words, the books were canonical the moment they were written. It wasn't necessary to wait until various councils could examine the books to determine if they came from God. People in councils only recognized and acknowledged what is true because of the intrinsic inspiration of the books as they were written. No Bible book became canonical by action of some church council. That's really important. So we think about it because a lot of people will try to salt that. We'll try to say, oh, this is just a bunch of men assembling this together. No, 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 no. It happened long before that. It happened in some universal ways. Um, Again, Da Vinci Code, you know, what about this Gospel of Peter or something like that? It's not in there. Jesus was married or, you know, all these types of things. Well, hold on, hold on. You know, we can kind of push the brakes on that. Second quote, J.I. Packer, the church no more gave us the New Testament canon then Sir Isaac Newton gave us the force of gravity. God gave us gravity by his work of creation, and similarly, he gave us the New Testament canon by inspiring the individual books that make it up. Again, my hope is for you to see that this is not a man-made process that assembled these books. Um, and that's what I love. When you really get into reading that, it's, just, it's beautiful about the scripture. It really is something distinct and different. So that's the best that I can do to commend to you um, the canonization Uh, Here's the last thing I'll say, and we'll wrap up about the Bible. What about the composition? We talked a little bit about this already. Okay, so originally written, but how has it got to us today? Copying, composition, editing, assembling, all these factors. Again, yes, we believe the Holy Spirit superintended them. Um, And so we have manuscripts throughout centuries, different ones, older, different ones say this. And so we brought them together. And that's why there's obviously, right, there's different versions. One, because we're going from three languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek, into one, English, but also just because there's different, um, when you, you know, if you're a linguistic major, like that guy in the back right there, yes, Tyler, you, you know, when you're going from one language to another, you're always making interpretation. If even I'm talking in Spanish, I've got to make interpretation about this. Um, it's not like this equals this 100% of the time, and it's just plug and play. Um, and so that's why every, every version you have is making some choices. Those choices might be more literal in terms of close to the original word as possible. It doesn't read real well, but it's very literal. Or they may go more towards the end of, well, it's going to read a little smoother and better if I do it this way, even though this word isn't exact. It's more the idea of the word. And so that's why there's obviously different versions. Um, ESV, NASB, uh, New King James, those are probably the most literal. They're on this spectrum. Uh, then you move more towards like NIV. Uh, kind of more towards the middle, and then this spectrum more like the New Living. Um, of course, the message is like off the chart page, you know, it's over there. Or the Word on the Street Bible, if anyone has that. Don't read it, it's awful. Um, and, um, and so, anyways, that's where we get versions. So I just wanted to, to, to say that on, um, on the bottom of your page, oh, that's helpful, isn't it? Uh, I, I put some resources down at the bottom, and there's some good ones, some recommended Bible translations, some Bible reading plans, uh, why we believe the Bible, and 
Um, I also handed out, and some of you may not have gotten it, so sorry, you can email me. I'll bring some more copies next week. Just kind of a, okay, what does it look like to actually read through the Bible? Help me study the Bible. Help me um, start. I don't know where to start when I open the Bible. That's what this page that I passed out was designed to do, just to help you go, man, I don't even know how to do what you're talking about. That's great that you gave me all that info about the Bible, but I just want to read it. Help me understand how to read it. Um, That's what that page is for. So, again, if you didn't get it, I'll bring some more copies next week. So, let me uh, leave you with this about the Bible as we kind of wrap that up. I just want to say, before we get into some more questions, let's get to the heart level. Man, when you read Psalm 19 and you see this is the Word of God, like, at the end of the day, the Word of God is a window for us. The Word of God is not an end in itself. It's a means to an end. It's the window by which we see our Creator. It's, it's, the, sh- it's the flashlight shining on Him so that we get to, to actually behold Him. So that the one who is most beautiful, most powerful, most good, most gracious, most just, we actually get to see Him and encounter Him. And so all this talk about what is the Bible and why does it matter, that's why it matters. Because we want to get in the Word because we want to see Him. We want to know Him. We want to encounter Him. And apart from this, we can't. We can only know in part. We can only know that general revelation. So praise God and His mercy. He's given us a very specific, clear picture of Himself that's vast and endless in the depths. We can mine this thing. You can read it over and over and continue to pull out new truth and see Him in more clear ways. And so just at a heart level, like that's my hope as you walk away from today going, man, I want to I get in there. I want to know him. I want to dig into this and see him more clearly. It's not that we turn this into an idol as an end in itself. Who knows the most about this? No. Who knows the God of this? Who's revealing himself in this? That's the whole point. Um, and so my homework for you, yes, you have homework. Homework is for you to read Psalm 119, which is the longest chapter in the Bible. And there's 176 verses just about the word God. And then you start reading that, and your heart just starts getting going. Like, this really is beautiful. This really is rich. This really is deep. Yes, I want more. And you know, like any good thing, the more you get of it, the more you want of it. And that's no different about the Bible. The times where I'm not in the scriptures, I tend to not want to get in there. And the times that I'm in there and digging in, the more I want to do that. So my hope for you would be that that would just be an igniter in your soul to want the word more. So, um, questions about the Bible? Tyler. Can you talk a little louder? We like to think Well, I think it's important to really investigate each of those passages. So, like, at the end of Mark, right? Didn't 
Todd talk about that as he preached at the end of Mark. He kind of hit on that too. So I think you've got to treat each case individually. Um, I think some um, may not be. Yeah, and we need and we need to investigate that. And then some I think may be, and that's just a matter of criticism. Uh, sure, there's people who want to deny Paul authorship of every book. There's people who wanted to, I mean, they, they want to deny everything. And so, okay, well, what is truth and what's not? Well, sometimes it's over our heads, honestly. I'm not the most scholarly person in the world. I'm not. I'll just admit that. Um, and so I get, I get bogged down sometimes in a lot of text criticism, form, source criticism, which is what you're talking about. Where did this come from? The Gospel of Mark, was it actually Mark, or was he pulling from two different sources and blah, blah, blah. Sometimes I'm like, who f- cares, you know? Like, I'm over this, like... But sometimes it matters, and, I, and so I get it. And I think we just got to treat case by case. I think you got to get a really, um, you need kind of both sides of the argument, I think, sometimes. So you don't just want to go one book only. Get a guy who's going to go, no, this wasn't, this wasn't an original manuscript. And then get a guy who says, yeah, this is original. Read them, compare for yourselves if it matters. Um, otherwise, um, sit under, hopefully, good preaching who's going to help expose those things. If you don't really care, then just sit under good preaching and trust your elders. But I would, I would, I would search it out yourself if you really think it's something significant, like the, the issue in Timothy with the head covering. So, it's a good dodge of your answer, of your question. Yeah, I did. I told you how to go about it. I didn't tell you my opinion on those specific ones, but that's kind of not the point of this. So, other questions about the Bible? You can email me. That's why I put that up on the website or on the screen earlier. Um, if you have questions, I would love for you to email me. Maybe you didn't want to ask it in here or whatnot. Um, here's the last thing I was going to say. I uh, Last year, I, when I taught this, I, I treated this as an entire separate section. We spent 45 minutes on this. Today, I'm just going to cover it in two minutes, pretty much. But I think it's important if we talk about the Bible to talk about the author of the Bible. Who wrote it? Who is God? And, of course, we're going to see a lot of that play out in the next five weeks, but I think it's important that we, um, we don't gloss over it right now. So I've included on this sheet right here just a list of his characteristics, his attributes. Um, the reason is because I think, it's, um, I think it's important to know who the Lord is. And these, we can look at these as lists and kind of detach ourselves from this. Yeah, he's eternal. Yeah, he's omni-whatever. <laughs> but not really personalize them. And I just want you to know, man, this is the God of the Bible we're trying to get to know. Everything I just told you about, this is why we want to get into the scriptures, is to know the one who is these things. That's the whole point. We want to know the one who is these things. Um, and so uh, my, my heart plea to you is, would be to dig into these things. See how he's this. See how he's that. Uh, experience. Maybe, maybe you've never experienced God as Father. God as faithful. God as sovereign. Ask the Lord to begin to show you how he is those things to really pull out of the scripture that he is those things for you. Um, because at the end of the day, that's, that's what we want. We want, we want to know him. Um, I, I put also on there the Trinity, and that's a subject that could be spent multiple hours on, obviously. And so I hate to, to treat it so trivially, so quickly, um, but hopefully this, at least this diagram and a short, succinct definition will at least help somewhat. Um, I wanted to go into it more, but we're just not going to be able to. But essentially... God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, how are they three and yet one at the same time? It is probably the most difficult thing for us as humans to be able to understand about the Lord. It's very uh, above us, and there really is uh, no metaphor that can accurately uh, communicate it. Everyone wants to try to get their...
pretzel analogy on or they're, you know, water is ice and vapor and, you know, all this. Man, those just, they come short. Every one of those comes short at some level. They kind of help get us there, but they don't fully help us see who God rightly is in the Trinity. Three in one, three in essence, or one in essence, three in function or in roles. So we won't dig into that. Unfortunately, I'm sorry to, to cut you short on that. Um, but it is, um, yeah, we, you can email me more. We'll talk more about that. I did want to hit real quick on the names of God um, because as we kind of come across some of these names um, the next few weeks in the Old Testament, it's important. Elohim, Yahweh, and Adonai. Elohim is really the word for God. It's used of every other nation's gods too. It's this transcendent word, creator. Um, and so it's not distinct to us as Christians. It's, um, it's like, okay, Muslims call their de- deity Allah. Uh, it's kind of like a universal word, God, Elohim, creator, highest power. Um, where we get into God really revealing himself more fully is in Exodus 3, when he reveals himself in the burning bush to Moses, and he says, I am who I am. Um, and that's where we get this word Yahweh. Yahweh is, co- is called the Tetragrammaton, four letters, Y-H-W-H, Yahweh, without the vowels. That simply comes from the word to be, which is used in that I am who I am. It's like God is saying, uh, I simply am. I simply exist. Who I am is who I am. Um, I am all that is. And that's essentially what Yahweh is trying to capture, is that verb to be. Um, And so that's why we say Yahweh. Um, Y-H-W-H is written because, uh, just scroll down, because we don't actually know the vowel points under there. Those were put in in later um, by the Masoretes in like the 14th and 15th century a lot of whom were German, who couldn't speak English correctly. <laughs> they could speak English. They just say things differently. And so that's where you get the word Jehovah. Uh, they say Y's and J's differently in German, right? And so Jehovah is simply a word that's morphed, basically, from Yahweh. And so if you ever hear that, Jehovah Jireh, well, originally it's, it's Yahweh Yireh. That's how you say it, the Lord, our provider. But anyways, this word is specifically like God saying, yeah, I'm God, but this is my name. It's like me saying, yeah, I'm, I'm your dad to my little girl, and then saying, my name is Tyler. So this is him saying, my name is this. So I'm not just the creator, transcendent God, but I'm your covenant Lord. Often when the word Lord is used like this, it's, it's actually highlighting the personal nature of God. This is the covenant God of Israel in the Old Testament, of the church in the New Testament. So it's something very personal when God uses this word. And, uh, and when you see it in your Old Testament, it's going to be capitalized. So sometimes it'll just say LORD, and it's not capitalized. Uh, like all caps, sorry, all caps. It's always going to be capitalized, but all caps LORD means they're using Yahweh. When it's not all caps, it means they're using this third word, Adonai, which is just kind of a general term, master, LORD. Um, you know, someone who uh, works for someone might call them Adonai. You know, you're my boss. So this is kind of more general term. Um, obviously we know Jews won't use the word Yahweh they think it's so holy they won't say it they'll say Adonai for everything Um, so just a little bit of background on that Um, it's 12.01 so we'll we'll end there a little bit I wish I could have talked a little bit more about the character the nature of God um, and his mission we'll intro next week with his mission as we kind of get into the scriptures in Genesis 1 through 3 there's a sermon I would also recommend to you, and it's on this. Uh, it's called The Nature of God by Graham Cook. It's a little 20-minute short sermon, but it's beautiful kind of. 
here's who God is. Here's what he is like. Uh, it really stirs my soul. So just one thing I want to put on there. So let us uh, close in prayer. Um, and, uh, and as we do, I would really just encourage you, man, if this is our God and he is all these things up there, um, man, I want to delight in him. I want to enjoy him. I want to savor all that he is. I want to know all that he is if, if he is these things. And so uh, my hope is obviously for you that you're stimulated, you're sparked in the same way. Um, I want to know God in these kinds of ways. And so uh, the next five weeks, hopefully we'll get to see that. We'll get to see glimpses of his wisdom and his love and uh, his justice and how those two things were, were fighting and yet his wisdom found a way. To, to match those two and how because he's sovereign and because he's good, we can trust him and all these things and why these things actually matter. Um, and so let's, uh, let's pray. And, uh, and then, yeah, you can find me if you have any questions. Lord, we, we love you. We thank you. Um, we just need to sit in your truth. And, um, and as, we, as we talk about your word, uh, we talk about all these big terms about it, at the end of the day, Lord, would you just um, would you just give us the trust that we need, the submission that we need, uh, the clarity, the illumination that we need to be able to see you for who you are. So we thank you that you've revealed yourself, that you've not stayed hidden, um, that you've made very clear, very plain. At the same time, God, our heart breaks for those who don't have, have the Bible, who don't have that scripture. And so we want to pray for those right now who may not have that special revelation. Um, and so, God, we ask that you would Make known yourself to them in very clear ways. We know you've done so in miraculous, mighty ways that supersede your word at times. And so we just pray that you would pursue them. We pray that we would be diligent about getting your word into different languages for this very reason, so that we might know you. As we leave today, God, may our hearts be sparked and stirred that we want to know the author of this Bible who's revealing himself. Uh, we know that what we think about you is the most important thing about us. There's nothing else that matters more. And so, God, it's a joy. It's, it's exciting to get to talk about these things the next six weeks. Would you bless everyone that's in here? Would you help them to, as we walk through these things, wrestle through things they might need to, to understand and, and receive things that they need to? Um, may they just be blessed, God, and may their love for you grow, their affection for you increase, um, their ability to understand who you are and talk about you um, be increased as well. And so we love you and we pray. Uh, to you, Father, through the name of Jesus, by the power of your Spirit. Amen.